What's up, guys? Welcome back to Sit Down with Sit podcast. This is episode number 25, and I have a very special guest today. Uh, he is one of the handful of people in the world who has organized and led teams to the seven summits, including two expeditions to, of Mount Everest, and has directed his passion for mountaineering to build a multi-million dollar adventure travel company. He draws from his unique experiences and achievements to deliver memorable and relevant takeaways about defining and attaining success, effective leadership in dynamic environments, and aligning your goals to persist through, abs- through any obstacle. Without any further ado, it is an honor for me to present our guest today, David Snow. Hi, David. Thanks for hey, being Sid. with us. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, you know. Uh, David, so, uh, you know, before we kind of get into the main subject of this podcast, uh, would you mind taking a moment and telling our audience a little bit about your background and, you know, where you are yeah. in place? Sure. Um, just quickly, born in California, raised in Utah near the uh, Wasatch Mountain, but never really stepped foot in mountains, ironically enough. Uh, went to business school locally in Utah. Uh, went to grad school in Utah as well, got an MBA and then uh, married. I have a wife, three teenage daughters. Started in the cell phone telecom business that you're familiar with. Uh, I was there for about a decade and then transitioned over to software sales and fell into adventurepreneurship, which uh, climbing led me into about 15 years ago. Oh my gosh. So, so how did you first get into the mountaineering thing? So when I was in the telecom cell phone business, I had a coworker one day just randomly, you know, I'm in my late 20s and he just comes in, pushes me out of the way, commandeers my computer, pulls up a picture of Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. And he says, this is Mount Rainier. We're going to climb it. You're going to do it with me. I'm like, get out of here. I don't like hiking or climbing or I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, no, no, it's fine. Only one or two people a year die. And I'm like, get out of here. That's not, that does not interest me at all. Anyway, he continues to badger me and badger me and badger me. We take a mountaineering course locally. And then that summer we fly out to the state of Washington under horrific conditions. We climb up to the summit of Rainier. We're sitting down, my coworker, we're totally exhausted. And I am looking over this view of the cascades while my coworkers like, let's get out of here. This is miserable. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is really cool. So climbed down and got bit by the mountaineering bug. And that was about 14, 15 years ago and been climbing ever since. Oh my gosh. So, so can we say that that's what drew you to climbing on the world's highest mountains, one of the your beginning kind of chapter. Yeah, Sid, I never thought that that step up on the summit of Rainier would lead to where it has. But after that, I was the one badgering friends to come back. So we climbed Rainier the, the following year. And then I had some other friends like, well, what else is out there? So I had a cousin who uh, lived in Switzerland. He's like, there's this thing called the Matterhorn in my backyard. He's like, like, I don't know how to climb, but, and you just got into it. Maybe we got to do it. I'm like, okay, we can try it. But, um, we got a little bit too intimidated, got cold feet. So we settled for Mount Kilimanjaro instead okay. of the Matterhorn. 
And uh, from there, every year, we've just gotten together with a group of climbing friends to see what's next. So, so like over the years of climbing these mountains, have your motivations changed with age and experience? And like, what kept you going back to high altitude, you know, year after year? Yeah, so uh, once um, you get into higher elevations and the, the perceived risk gets higher, you mentioned kind of like what motivations has changed with your age. People get a lot of speculation. Well, you do have three daughters. You know, you need to be responsible. You, should be, you shouldn't be climbing mountains. But what I've learned in this whole process is there is acceptable risk. And during this whole process, We've learned, I've learned, I say we a lot because I've always got my best buddies on every expedition. That's why I do it. But every place you go, the experience is really what matters. And I've been able to share that experience and share these mountains now with my family, with my daughters. And so with age and experience comes just kind of an increased level of Hell, you know, I haven't really slowed down, um, but I, I have learned to appreciate more of the experience than just the logistics and getting to the top for sure. So, I mean, I mean, listen, to do what you do, you have to be physically and mentally really tough. So, so like how challenging was it for you to prepare yourself in those aspects? And did at any point you kind of thought, you know what, I don't think I can do this anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At very early, very early in my career, I, I keep a little kind of journal. And I remember climbing a peak called Aconcagua in South America, right mm -hmm. after Kilimanjaro, actually, where I said, this is miserable, like I'm never doing this again. Because your body and your mind naturally gravitate to the comfortable. We as humans, we want to take the path of least resistance. We want to bask in that warm glow of sedentary. And so when that's not the case, as a matter of survival, your instinct is like, get me off this mountain, get me away from risk. Don't let me take this next business challenge. Don't put me in front of this group to speak. You name it. We're trying to always find ways to, to get more comfortable. So I've actually learned to appreciate the discomfort the growth and discomfort. And because of this discomfort and growth, that lesson I learned a long time ago on Aconcagua is in order to see what's on the top of the horizon or what's out there, you almost have to go through this amount of pain. If you look back in your life and the things that you've done personally or your family, the greatest amount of growth is typically from the greatest struggle and the greatest challenge for sure. So that's just the way of looking at that, that way. That's, that's actually absolutely, you know, you nailed it on the spot. That's absolutely correct. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, seven summits, you know, so in, in back in May of 2018, you became one of the handful of climbers in the world who completed these seven summits. Could you take us back to the history of all summits, you know, like the first year when it started, and the accomplishment dates and year, if you remember? Yeah, so um, in 2010, we, we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is the highest peak in Africa, highest freestanding mountain in the world. The next year, as I mentioned, we went to Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in South America. 
we summited just after New Year's on in 2012. So we started in 2011, 2012, and then 2013, we chose Mount Elbrus, which is the highest peak in Europe, and summited that in uh, June, I think is the climbing season. And then we kind of realized, all right, if we're starting to check off these highest continents, let's um, take a look at Denali, which in terms of the seven summits outside of Everest is the most challenging. And once we got to the top of Denali in 2014, my friends and I kind of started to think about Everest and think about the seven summits. Whereas before we're like, you know, this is just fun as a group to get together. We were self-guided in a lot of these. And then we knocked off Kosciuszko in Australia the following year, which is just kind of like a day hike. And then from there in 2016, we went to the bottom of the world and got to the top of Antarctica, which left Everest as our final seven, which we then uh, attempted in 2017. So, I mean, I, I mean, I've read about you. I want to talk a little bit about Mount Everest. Um, so you have led expeditions to Mount Everest twice. Uh, and you were successfully able to summit it once. Now, my question to you is, the reason why I'm asking this question is, I've watched a lot of documentaries on Everest and some people call it a death wish, you know? So what was it that first drew you to Mount Everest? Yeah, it, Everest is funny. There's not a person on the planet who doesn't know what Mount Everest is. It's the most famous piece of real estate on the planet. There's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of perceptions. And so for, for different people, it can invoke a lot of different things. For me and our group, it was another mountain, certainly a mountain we had to respect, a mountain that's beautiful, as beautiful as Everest and the Himalaya are the people, the Nepali people are that much more incredible. And so it was this overarching compilation of everything. And it was the culmination of our seven summits that we, we kind of fell into and were, we were working towards. So Everest was never initially on the radar until we saw, said like, well, we've kind of been fortunate enough to reach the top of these other peaks. Let's, let's head out to Everest and, and try that expedition. So we did. So David, I mean, being the highest uh, point in the world, uh, how, how tough was the training? Did you have to do some special kind of training? Because once again, you know, when you talk about Everest, it kind of, you know, has its own kind of perception, you know? So, yeah. so, so, so I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, what kind of training it takes? Uh, is it for everyone? Like, you know, what sets people like yourself apart from people like us who only dream of climbing, you know, <laughs> you got a little, be a little bit crazy, I think to take Everest expedition, but the summit, a lot of times is won or lost in the training. So it's, uh, I have a weighted vest that's 40 pounds that I would wear on a stair climber. So you go into the gym with this weighted vest and people look at you funny. They're like, are you, what's going on here? You, you, I have a, another backpack where I put 30 pounds of water in a jug, carry it to the top, then let the water out at the top just so it doesn't kill my knees on the descent. A lot of cycling, swimming, core, and you're doing that six days a week. 
at night for Everest, I had a company who wanted me to try this kind of hyperbaric chamber. So it's this tent that surrounded my pillowcase and mm -hmm. essentially limited the oxygen. So it raised my elevation to about 15,000 feet. I got up to about 18,000 before I left to Everest. And, and so all these different components that go into trying for a successful summit before you even take your first step on the mountain. So for those who come well-prepared, it's a big investment in time and sacrifice, but um, I've never heard anybody say they've overtrained once they get into an expedition and kind of see what it's like. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of time, but, but the dividends are worth it. I'm, I'm absolutely sure about the dividend part. So, so your first attempt to Mount Everest was back in 2017. And this is what happened 300 feet. And that's what separated you and your team from the rooftop of the world. So, so what happened? I mean, how crushing was that for your team's morale? And did you contemplate on trying to go for the summit in the next coming days? So I'm actually asking you, sorry to ask you two, three questions in the same sentence, but uh, let's talk about, you know, as, you, as I said, you know, you were just 300 feet from the summit. Uh, so what happened? Yeah. So May, it would have been May 16th, 2017. Uh, our expedition manager, a lot of people don't realize when you leave base camp on Everest to go for the summit, you're not at the summit for five more days. So your weather report that you get has to be the best guess from five days from now when you leave. Because once you leave, you're committed. Sure, you come down, but that's not the idea. You've been on the mountain for six, eight weeks, and now you're ready to go. So we set out from base camp, go through camp one, two, three, wait at camp four, the final camp before the summit. The rope team that is necessary, the rope team Sherpa is necessary to fix safe lines all the way to the summit, just fixed lines. And there was a storm coming in and they had just came down the mountain. We were the first team that year. Our summit uh, uh, base camp manager thought it'd be a, we were in a good position. Our team was strong that we could be the first group up the, the mountain that year. We start climbing. The conditions were okay. And the idea was this jet stream that hits the mountain 360 days a year at 100 mile per hour winds would lift up. And that's the window that everybody tries to go to in order to, to hit the summit. The jet stream was going to lift until about 7 a.m. And so we were trying as best we could to reach the summit before 7 a.m. And as we're going, the winds just started picking up and getting stronger and stronger. We're leaning into the wind step after step. We we get to the south summit, which is, like you said, 300 feet from the top. And that jet stream that was supposed to be off for a couple more hours had already slammed down. And now it was blitzing us with about 100 mile per hour winds. We're arguing with our Sherpa and he was telling us we have got to turn back. We've got to turn back. We're like, oh, and I'm devastated, even though it's probably four in the morning and it's pitch black, I can just see the summit because in my mind's eye, I have trained with this bag, with this cycle, everything in the gym, I have just trained and seen it. And previously, a couple hours before, 
one of the um, sobering things about climbing Everest is you do pass bodies that uh, are frozen yeah. along the route. And we had passed a body that had been there probably a year prior. And it finally got to the point where our guide, who is very knowledgeable, Sarke Sherpa, said, if we don't turn back now, you are going to be like that body we passed a few hours ago. And that's all it took. I mean, once he said that and knocked some sense into us, finally, we should have, we shouldn't have been there trying to argue with them in the first place. But from that moment, we turned back and believe me, it was the hardest, slowest climb down of my life because we were so close. And to the second part of your question, did you want to come back? Once we got back down to camp two, at 20,000 feet, my friends were like, my three buddies were like, oh man, we're gassed. Um, but I was thinking, gosh, maybe we can give it another shot. And they said, you know, bless you. We're done. We're going down. But um, I wanted to give it another shot. And day after day getting, I was down about 20 pounds at that point. My base camp manager finally come, came across the radio and said, you know what? the weather for the next five days is going to be just like the weather that turned you back. You can risk it or you can come back. And I realized at that point, my expedition was over. And so we came down and um, without the summit, without our seven summits. And it was, it was pretty tough. So David, I want to ask you a couple of things. Number one. So you only have a two week window frame to summit Mount Everest. Is that correct? Yeah, that's usually about the average, middle of May. So, so the reason is you stood in camp two for five days because you wanted to go back again. But once that window closes, there is no way of going back up. Yeah, there could have been maybe a week later, but I just wasn't in the right physiology to sustain any more time on the mountain. And so for me, I think there might've been some summits later, later that season, there certainly were, but um, the position that we were, the shot that we took when we did kind of was our opportunity, even though I thought, you know, let me hold out. I'm feeling okay enough. Who knows what would have happened if I would have attempted again, the weekend that I thought I could go during that window of those four days, four or five days, four climbers died on Everest. So, you know, again, Kudos to my base camp manager, thanks to an insightful guide that turned us back in the first place, because I think we'd probably still be up there if, if we listened to ourselves instead of our guide. So, so, David, is it true that more people die descending than ascending the summit? I believe that to be the case. I don't know the statistics, um, but in mountaineering in general, absolutely. You're really? so focused. Yeah, you're so focused on the goal. Any, any trips or situations I've had have definitely be on the descent. You, you train in your psychology is the summit. It's not the summit is only halfway. So that's what we have to train anybody that I climb with. It's like, we're only halfway once we're standing up there basking in that, that few minutes of, of a goal achieved. Your goal isn't achieved until you're back home safely. So a lot of people will let their guard down. They're extremely fatigued. It's less control with, in terms of gravity descending than climbing up a mountain. 
So all those things play into overwhelming majority of hap- accidents happening on the descent. So now your 2017 summit is over. You come back home, you let things settle down. I'm sure, you know, it must be devastating for some time, but then you kind of regroup yourself and you decide, you know what, I'm going to go back to Mount Everest in 2018. And this time, you know, you successfully stood on the highest point of the world along with your teammates. Uh, Now, before I ask you about what does it feel like to be on the highest point of the world, I want to ask you, what was different this time in terms of your mindset? Since you knew that it could happen again, what happened in 2017? So in 2017, um, my wife is like, <laughs> while I was still in base camp, just kind of feeling sorry for myself. She's like, well, what do you think? Do you, do you think you'll ever go back? And I'm like, I, I don't ever want to even think about this because I was in that frame of mind, just totally obliterated. I get home and we do a family reunion in a place called Mammoth Lakes, California with my wife's side of the family. And... <sighs> I didn't really think about going back. We're at this family reunion and we rented these paddle boards and these paddle boards had to be returned at like 4 PM. It was across the lake and we're at the shore and I'm with my youngest daughter and the time is approaching. We need to get back. And this wind picks up again, this wind that seems to be like the bane of my existence everywhere I go, this wind picks up. And my daughter's concerned. She's like, dad, do you think you'll be able to to get those paddle boards back across the lake in time? And my uncle-in-law who's there said, of course he can. He almost climbed Mount Everest. And that word almost just really stung. So when I got home, I just couldn't get that out of my mind. Am I going to be the almost guy? I'm going to be the, the guy who almost reached the seven summits, who almost climbed Everest. So I went with my, talked to my wife again and asked her if I could get another pass. And she's like, fine. Cause it's a, she's the true hero amongst the Sherpa guys that we have. It's, it's my wife for understanding all of this, this craziness. And then I phoned my friends and my buddies and got them on board. So what we did differently the next year, we were in a little bit more control of when we would decide our summit window would be. Preparation, the anxiety of the unknown wasn't there this time. We knew we could do it. We knew we were so close. We just needed the right weather window. We knew the systems, the training, all of that was in place because of our experience. And so once we did get that clear forecast that, all right, it's it's go time, we were pretty confident that we could reach the top and return safely. Wow. So when you finally reached the summit, what was it like? There is so, it's so hard to describe, which is why I'm kind of at a loss for words. When you stare across this world, not just on Everest, but any place in nature or any beautiful piece of art, it there's there's something there that that can be transformative. And so, with a situation like Everest, where you stare across the Himalaya, there's nothing below you, 
and you take a moment to pause just for the gratitude for the enormity of it all it it can change your dna you know it, it changes you internally coming off that mountain coming back to the valleys of life anything that might pop up in business or the world you realize you know what it's not so hard. I know I can do hard things. And the only way that I know I can is because I've been through the difficult. I've leaned into the difficult and been out on the other side. So what's it like on the top? It's, um, it's life-changing. So is it correct to say when you came back, you were a different man? Yeah, there's a, there's an old cliche that says the, man who starts the race is not the same man who finishes it. I think that's true with, with anything in life that's worth pursuing. I've been changed just a little bit for the better on every climb, especially Everest. You're a little bit more patient. You're a little bit more appreciative. Unfortunately, I've had friends die in the mountains. And so this beautiful thing that creates so much, so much richness to life, so much preciousness, I guess is the wrong word that's added to my life can, can also be taken away. Like the shirt I'm wearing, it says, um, the mountain oh, doesn't wow. care. That is <laughs> so like, true. Yeah. The mountain doesn't care. And it's true. We can't blame the mountain. We can't look externally for things to blame. We have to always look internally. So a lot, a, a lot of things that the mountains have taught me that I, I just really couldn't, couldn't learn otherwise. So, so David, now I want to ask you, um, you know, I came across this statement, uh, you know, as I mentioned before on documentaries as well, they say people like yourself who climb highest peaks in the world, they have some sort of substance inside them that keeps them bringing back, although they know the risk of losing their life. How much is this true? Do you agree or you think there can be a different perception to this question or statement? Yeah, I, Sid, I don't think anybody, I, I know nobody sets out thinking or believing they'll, they'll die in the mountains. They're, they're aware of it. They know, they know the risk and the possibility, but they're not a single person who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm confident I'm not coming back. So... I, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. My friends and family know that I'm like super safe, which kind of seems contradictory to what you see and what perceptions are with mountaineers and mountain climbing. But if it wasn't safe, I wasn't in control, I wouldn't do it. This is, I wasn't some crazy teenage kid. You know, I didn't get into mountaineering until my late 20s. So when you say like, you never really know until you try, I mean, that was true in my case. I was not pulled to the mountains, I wasn't a nature lover uh, at the time none of this was open to me. So it, are there different types of substance inside of people that, that pulls them to this? Maybe it's in everybody. They just don't know because they, they haven't stepped foot uh, or haven't tried it. But for me personally, it's not the thrill or adrenaline or anything. It's, it's certainly much more about the relationships and the experience that brings Very me well, back. Very well said. Uh, one last question I want to talk about on Everest before I move on to the other topic is 
for you to explain to our audience. So there are two sides of climbing Everest, the North Ridge and the South Col. Uh, did you attempt the summit from the South, both sides? I did, uh, both times because for me personally, I, I did a lot of research. I was kind of the expedition leader and I wanted to give our group a really authentic experience of, of climbing Everest, which the South side, you have to spend a week to 10 days, even to trek into base camp. You're, you're trekking through the most beautiful terrain in the entire world in the Himalaya. You experience the culture and the people when you stay in tea houses. The Kumbu Icefall, which is very dangerous, uh, you have to navigate through. And then just the Western Coom, the South Call, like you mentioned, on the way to the summit. The North side is um, you can drive to base camp. It's a little windier and it is more difficult, a little bit more technical on the summit day. But the cultural experience is a little bit less, I believe. Again, I can't speak to the north side. It's certainly a worthy side of the mountain, a worthy route. I'm not, I don't want to diminish that at all. But both in 2017, and then we decided let's, let's do the same route because we had such a, a great experience uh, the year before we repeated the same route again. Interesting. You know, the reason I ask you this question is because, you know, I've, I've done uh, – lot of reading on Everest, you know, and they say that the North Ridge, one thing is that it, the border lies in Tibet. So you need a permit from China, you know, in order to enter the North side. Yeah. Second being, they say that it is not as steep as the South side, but it is more dangerous than the South side because there is no way to rescue you from the North side. If you're stuck, is that correct, David? Based They've been getting yeah, to my knowledge, they're getting better at the helicopter rescues on the north side. It is um, a lot a more dangerous summit day on the north side. It is colder, okay. so exposure is colder. Um, statistically speaking, I don't know the per capita. Certainly, I think it's like 75% of the summits happen from the south because of volume. Uh, okay. And that's, uh, uh, you know, 75, 25 that I, I'm not sure exactly, but you're right. Yeah. The uh, ability to rescue it, it's all controlled by China. And so that's a, that's another hurdle on the North side, but a beautiful mountain all around and any route that you can manage to take, there's uh, def definitely pros with each, each side. Amazing. Now, have you ever thought about climbing K2, which is considered to be more dangerous than Mount Everest? Am I correct on that or? Yeah, it's more technical. Um, my wife says, if you don't want a wife anymore, you can climb K2. <laughs> so that's Sorry. always uh, ended oh that my discussion. Gosh. Yeah. We did a, we did a mountain called Amada Blom two months ago, and mm -hmm. it, it, that's more technical than Everest. And that was a, a wonderful expedition. And, and my guide, who is my guide on Everest was my guide on Amada Blom. He's like, you've done this. You, you can do K2. He, he said, K, uh, Everest is harder than K2, which I, I, I don't believe, I'm not sure what he said. He's like, it's K2 is getting much more safe. And he's like, you, especially your group could do it. But um, the perception again is there. It, de it definitely is a more difficult technical climb than Everest. And um, for whatever reason, the wife's <laughs> can only give me so many wife passes, but um, today K2 is not on the table. So for example, if tomorrow your wife says yes, but you attempt K2, that's my question. If my friends were all up for it, 
because I've never stood on a summit without one of my best friends or buddies right there by my side. We'd strongly consider it. Isn't it so amazing? Like the inspiration and the fire to like try something else. So challenging is still inside of you. I mean, I can sense it, you know, it's like yeah. you want to go back there, but once again, <laughs> you know, yeah. you need approval. So, uh, well, that's great. So, you know, I want to talk about, uh, a little bit about expedition, you know, expedition side. So uh, according to you in your own experience, what do you think makes a good expedition leader? And what advice would you have for someone who wants to embark on a career in expedition leading? Expedition leaders, mountain guides, it's not too far off than any, any leader that has to direct people safely in the direction they need, they need to lead. I would say the most important thing that I've developed over the decades is something called scenario planning. And scenario planning is the ability to look at every different scenario that could possibly happen. In mountaineering, on big expeditions, that starts from bringing toenail clippers, because if you don't clip your toenails, you're going to lose your, your toenails on the descent by, by pounding your foot into the, the oh. toe bed of your boot to additional oxygen masks, because there will be failures in equipment to what kind of food you're eating. Is the water purified your equipment system? Do you have liners for your gloves? Are you going to sleep? Well, all of these different things, in addition to the external forces of weather, of avalanche, of terrain, of rope, all these scenarios you continually play out so that when you get into that situation, it doesn't impede the progress of your expedition or the safety of your team. So I would say that in terms of leadership is probably the most important key that I've found. And then once you decide on where the direction is you're going, you got to boldly go in that direction that feels the best. And you got to confidently go because there's people on your rope team that are tied to you to safely climb up these crevasses, climb up these icy mountains that are really looking towards you for your confidence, even though you might not have the first clue of where you're going or what you're doing. You kind of have to make it look like you are. And you can do that through these scenarios that you play out in your mind. Great. So, uh, you know, I, for people, I mean, I also want people to know that you are also an author. You, back in April of 2020, you wrote your first book, Peak Persistence, Why Some Reach Life Summits While Others Fail. So what inspired you to write this book? And, and if you don't mind telling our audience a brief synopsis of what the book is all about. I'm getting my copy tomorrow in the mail, so I'm excited to read it. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, it was... When we were climbing Denali, it was on our summit day. It was the worst year on the mountain in four decades. The weather was horrendous, but the, the day we went for the summit was bluebird day. Conditions were great. We were getting ready, and our team is about ready to hit, this, hit the route. And this group that we had been climbing close to throughout the previous two and a half weeks, I noticed one of their group members descending from the route by himself. And I couldn't figure out why we had done everything to get in this position to go. 
and he comes back and he's walking past and I just simply asked, Hey, how are the conditions up there? And what's up? He says, conditions are fine. Routes great. And he said, it's just not for me. No. And I thought, and I thought about that. And that's what actually led me to write peak persistence. I was captivated by how different people given these different situations when they've tried so hard, what's the difference between people who will take that next step and continue the climb, everything being equal versus those who turn back and say, it's just not for me. And what do they miss out on in life? And what are the people who progress and continue? What does their life look like? So I incorporated all of my mountain, some of my mountain stories, some business examples, case studies in with that to um, kind of just put down on paper what I, I thought was pertinent in my life and maybe hopefully to others as well. Well, I am excited and I can't wait to read. Uh, you know, uh, also we will put the description of the uh, link in the video description so people can actually go and purchase the, the book. Uh, I want to talk about your businesses, ventures, you know. So you have successful you have several successful mountain climbing and adventure companies in Africa, Nepal, Central, South America, and the U.S. How did that come about and what was the driving force behind these successful ventures? Yeah. So after Rainier, when we first started climbing, my buddy suggested a, a volcano in Mexico that's 18,000 feet called Orizaba. We went down there, wonderful family had a, a, that does these, these tours to get you to base camp. They drive you up there in a four-wheel vehicle. They have this hotel hostel and type of environment. They provide meals for you. They had no website, no internet presence. We get done and we have a great climb. And my buddy says, you know what? Why don't we help the Concholas, which is the name of the family, get like a, a website? I'm like, that's, that's a good idea. I'm like, do you know anything about websites? No. Do you speak Spanish? No. So long story longer, my buddy kind of bowed out of it. I kept going with it. We, we built him a website and we helped him market, get clients, get search engine optimization going. And now it's, it's the largest operator in Orizaba. And so from that, when we went to Kilimanjaro the next year, it kind of duplicated that process with a, an operator that had been on the mountain for decades, just had a very weak internet presence. So we started Climb Keeley from that with a safari company and a safari lodge in the Serengeti going over to Nepal, similar things. And so we really not knowing what to do, but just really trying to figure it out based upon what other people have done in the same space that have been successful. And it's, it's been a good venture for 13 years now and, and growing. That's amazing. So, so David, let me ask you, is it fair to say that your, the challenges you faced in climbing these summits somehow transcended into successful strategies in your businesses to where they are today? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like what I mentioned before when you have those days, Sid, as I'm sure you've seen being an entrepreneur yourself and your marketing companies and your career in real estate and you get to the point where you're like, do, do I want to make that call? Do I want to do more research? Do I want to figure that out? 
And then you, you kind of realize within your own constitution that you have been there before. You can do that. You have the ability to push through. I've been to the, I've been to the top metaphorically and literally. So I, I know I can figure this out. And so that's kind of the way I approached some of these businesses. And of course, couldn't do it without great business partners along the way. Perfect. A uh, couple of more things before, before we wrap this up. Putting the financial aspects on the side, are you more passionate about mountaineering or businesses, entrepreneurship? <laughs> if, you don't mind, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you my answer, what I see. When I think of you, I say a mountaineer, once a mountaineer will always remain one. I see your passion through your eyes in that. I want to ask you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, there's something, you know, you, you couldn't have, I, I failed as a Boy Scout. I, like I mentioned, I couldn't care less about hiking. It was just something, but you're right. You know, once you, you experience what the world is and traveling and seeing the world and just this beautiful creation, that, that doesn't ever get out of you. So in terms of enjoying that versus entrepreneurship, similar challenges, yeah, mountaineering definitely takes the cake, but uh, I really love being competitive, especially in our market space that I'm in. It's very competitive, trying to attract clients, providing the best possible, safest experience for them. And that is very rewarding too. Kilimanjaro, seeing clients who their life goal is to stand on top of Kilimanjaro and it's difficult. 19,000 feet is, is a difficult trek to get to, but very doable for most anyone. That's very rewarding in and of itself, even though I'm thousands of miles away, but can see our clients week after week uh, achieve something that, that they work towards. So uh, yeah, both of them kind of go hand in hand and are both very rewarding. So do you personally travel to all these business ventures like in different countries or you try to manage everything from here? Yeah, you have to have great ground uh, ground operation and business partners you trust. So the Conchola family, like I mentioned, my partner in Africa is local Tanzania and runs the operations. We package the clients and once they hit the ground there, they're uh, all responsible for our partners there, but not possible unless you have a, a trusted, reliable, good operation right on the ground. I mean, it's good to be a successful entrepreneur, but it's different to be a successful international entrepreneur. You know, so, so like it was it really challenging coming from like cultural aspects, you know, different policies in different countries for yourself? I mean, I, I'm very interested to listen to that if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is frustrating. But again, when, you, when you've got the right partner who understands that there is possible corruption, there is possible bribery that needs to take place, not that saying that that's been a part of our business, but when you understand the marketplace and the way it functions within that culture, then it is possible to thrive within that. Even though I'm at an arm's length away, like COVID right now in Kilimanjaro, they don't have uh, rapid testing. So our clients are having to wait a day or two to get their negative test to return. And the frustration that that happens, you know, when we see what we have available here. So tempering patience, tempering little things, understanding things that happen, um, Gosh, every other month, it seems there will be something that will be out of our control that the government imposes 
uh, our safari camp in the Serengeti. They gave us six months to pick up and leave because they wanted that area for an ambassador of another country to build their own. It, it, there's just situations that pop up time and time again. But again, back to the scenario planning, if you understand that these things will come and they'll come probably three or four times a year, if not more, then you can plan for it. But it's, uh, it's definitely unique dealing with international operations versus being able to get stuff done maybe in the United States. That's great. Uh, one last question before we wrap this up is I want to talk about your YouTube channel, which has over 60,000 subscribers. And I am one of your uh, fan, you know, if, <laughs> if I can say that. Uh, so what inspired you to come up with this YouTube channel? And, and I noticed that most of the documentaries you have is, you know, Everest, K2. So, so can we talk about that for a few minutes just for yeah. our audience to understand, please? Yeah, there's, a, there's, I think, channels that um, will have people who are, will film their climbs. You know, I try to dedicate a channel that just had hard to find documentaries on climbing. It's all typically mountaineering. There might be some one-off stuff, but it started when one of my videos on Everest, I just did a really quick three-minute thing, I guess, went viral, had a couple, three, four million views. And my wife's like, you know, you have to probably start adding some more content. So I put more of my climbs on there and then just asked others if I could post their content on the channel. And it seems to be a place where um, 60,000 or whatever subscribers have, have found to, to really appreciate the content that other people have put out and, and done. And it just bodes to, again, this beautiful world. If you can get out and see it, try to. Try to, you know, get out there and take that step because you really never know where it could lead. That's amazing. Uh, David, you are such an inspiration. You know, I am so grateful to have you. Uh, the last, if, if you were to leave a message to our audience watching the podcast, what would that be coming from you? <sighs> probably, yeah, probably just reiterating that thing I just said, you know, I, I try to tell my daughters, there is this whole world out there. There's this world that I didn't know existed. I didn't know that could be available to, to us. And it does take that faith of taking that one step, you know, take it because truly you never know where it might lead. And I believe that because I've seen it. So if I could say one thing, it would be that start with that one step. You can step backwards and, and retreat back into your comfort. But the power of that one step, you just never know. I love it, David. Well, David, I want to personally thank you very much for doing being on the podcast. And, uh, you know, it has been just a blast and an honor for, for us to have you here. And uh, I want to wish you all the very best and a happy 2022, uh, you know. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sid. Appreciate it. Thank you. You have a good day, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. Bye.